This is Acast Recommends. Every week we pick one of our favourite shows and this is one we think you're going to love. Hello, this is David Runciman and I want to tell you about a new series, Talking Politics, History of Ideas, which will explore the ideas behind modern politics. From Hobbes to Gandhi, from democracy to patriarchy, from revolution to lockdown. The big themes, the big thinkers and the big crises of the last 300 years. All of it relevant to the crisis we're living through today. Just subscribe to Talking Politics History of Ideas wherever you get your podcasts. Acast is home to the biggest podcasts from the UK and around the world. Subscribe to this show and hundreds more now via Acast or wherever you get your podcasts. Hello and welcome to the Heredity Podcast with me, Dr. James Bergen. Chimpanzees are humanity's closest evolutionary cousins, and they're one of the smartest and most widely recognised animals out there. Unfortunately, their interactions with us haven't always been benign. In fact, various forms of exploitation has left them vulnerable to extinction across their entire range. Fortunately, captive populations from various origins could hold valuable genetic diversity, and a new genetic method for determining the ancestry of these captive animals could aid in on-ground conservation efforts, and in more ways than you might think. In today's episode, we're going to hear from two of the authors behind the recent heredity paper, Targeted Conservation Genetics of the Endangered Chimpanzee. Now, this paper has really broad conservation applications, and we even discuss a bit about the role of zoos in modern conservation programs. It's a fascinating conversation, so let's get into it. Welcome to the Heredity Podcast. Can you please introduce yourselves? Sure. Claudia, you want to go first? Yeah, definitely. (laughs) (laughs) So, thank you very much for, for the opportunity to be here. My name is Claudia Fonsaré. I am from Barcelona, and I'm doing my PhD with Tomás Marquez Group at Evolutionary Biology Institute. And I'm actually going to finish pretty soon my PhD. Oh, exciting. And I'm Peter Fransen. I'm a postdoc at Copenhagen Zoo in Denmark. I work primarily on conservation genetics in great apes. Oh, fantastic. Well, welcome both. Thank you for joining me. Um, and I guess this paper focuses on chimpanzees, which are probably one of the most iconic animals out there, but there are perhaps a lot of misconceptions. So can you maybe just introduce us to chimpanzees, the animal, and tell us about the risks that they currently face? Yeah, sure. So the chimpanzee as a species now live in the tropical regions of equatorial Africa. The species consists of four different subspecies, where you have the three uh, to each other neighboring subspecies in the most central part. They are all endangered, uh, while the more isolated western chimpanzee is uh, now listed as a critical uh, endangered species. Um, most of the threats are, I mean, they all have a, a human component to it, like deforestation, transmissions of diseases, and hunting for, for bushmeat. And the illegal wildlife trade has, has really sparked in the, in the recent years. Mm. No, it's, it's interesting. I'm not sure many people would really consider the bushmeat angle. Yeah, and I think disease are also a major threat for chimpanzees since they are our closest relatives. They can also get infected by infectious disease that we as humans get, such as Ebola. And recently uh, there has been some uh, people talking, starting to talk about uh, how these SARS can also uh, infect these um, species. Yeah, so I, I guess the, the increased closer and closer contact you have between uh, wildlife and, and humans in these regions, like humans become a vector for, for some of these diseases and they are quite severe to, to these great ape populations. I mean, it's a bit like you would have an outbreak of this coronavirus 
in uh, in a society where you had absolutely no preventions, like sure. no medical care and whatever. No, that would be dreadful. Every everything these days seems to come back to COVID. <laughs> sure. Um, and it also starts there. I mean, it also starts with the hunting, right? For for the wildlife. So, I mean, the transmission can also go the other way. Yeah, definitely. Um, so I guess this paper is also focused pretty heavily on captive populations of chimpanzees. So I wonder if you could just sort of introduce us to the captive conservation efforts for this species and also the kind of specific issue that this paper was trying to address. Yeah, so we have what you could call sort of a insurance populations of chimpanzees in, in captivity. So different uh, regional captive breeding programs have been established and in this study, we focused on the, the European breeding program, which is a coordinated effort between the different institutions under the European associations of zoos and aquaria. And within this program, we aim to sort of safeguard the survival of a genetically healthy and self-sustaining population of chimpanzees. And perhaps different for some of the other regional breeding programs, we, we target the subspecies level in these breedings. That means that we try to prevent hybridizations between subspecies to sort of preserve the populations of chimpanzees that the most accurately uh, resemble the wild counterparts. Okay, fantastic. Yeah, and so I mean, this prevention of hybridization was it has previously been done using just stock books, uh, but we showed a couple of years ago that with just a, a handful of genetic markers that this has not really been a, a very accurate way to go around it. And actually, more than, than half of, of the current population is, is an admixture between different subspecies. So we really wanted for, for this study to design a genetic approach that would accurately assign different population parameters like ancestry in the different subspecies in a way that it would sort of work as a guiding tool for the breeding management. But at the same time, we also wanted to sort of bridge the gap to some of the on-ground conservation efforts like we talked about with the illegal wildlife trade in a way where we could use the same type and same set of data to answer both questions, really. Mm, interesting. So I guess the, the general approach was finding this sort of genetic method to pinpoint which animals were coming from these four different subspecies you described earlier. Yeah, exactly. exactly. Great. So, yeah. I mean, how did you go about trying to develop this method? So, yeah, as you were saying, this main focus was to try to you know, pinpoint and classify um, each individual to each subspecies. But, I mean, I think we need all to take into account that one of the main limitations that has been going on trying to do this applicability of genetics in conservation usually is the cost of it. Mm. So our main focus on this study was designing an approach that would, on the one hand, give us a comprehensive view of the genome while avoiding the cost of whole genome sequencing. So this was one of the main points that we wanted to do. And to have this comprehensive view and global view of the genome, we decided to select uh, the most informative markers distributed along the genome, that these markers would give us the information of subspecies, and that as well they would be distributed across the whole genome. So we could have all this information thanks to the availability of whole genome data that uh, was out there, that we could take this information and now design our capture array, so our array to, to study this population. Mm. Yeah, so I guess the whole build-up to this, I mean, making that foundation to, to be able to extract all this information is, of course, expensive, uh, and it's not feasible for, for any taxa, really. But for the chimpanzees and for a growing number of species, this is now a, a real possibility. And while the design might be a bit 
costly. The approach afterwards is, is in comparison, very, very cheap. Mm, fantastic. So I wonder if you could just tell us kind of exactly what this approach does. Um, so like what kind of markers you're using and was it any better than using, say, the stud books? Yeah, definitely it was uh, better than the stud books. Actually, we could solve many of the unknown ancestry of, of chimpanzees just by capturing these markers. So if you want to enter a little bit more on the details, um, as I was saying before, we designed a capture array that included uh, 60,000 SNPs that were informative for ancestry. And even though this may not capture exactly the same information as, for instance, whole genome would give us, uh, the most important thing is to know the genetic background of those individuals. So we may take that information into account in any possible or further breeding programs that these animals would be involved in. And I also want, would like to state that even though genetics is key for conservation and management in captivity, we should not forget there are many other aspects important to take into consideration. Mm, no, for sure. But I mean, I guess using the genetic method, you were able to pinpoint the geographic origin or hybrid origin of all of the animals that you looked at? Yes, we did as well. So one of the main objectives, as Peter was saying before, was to geolocate those individuals that were confiscated from illegal trade, right? So having all this genome information that has been published in the recent years, we had elaborated a geogenetic map that would give us an information of a correlation between geography and genetics. So we could infer geography from the genetic diversity of those individuals. So having all these atlas of genomic and geography, now we can go back to all of these illegally trafficked individuals and pinpoint them back to the origin where they're coming from. Mm, that'd be fantastic. And I guess before we kind of get on to sort of implications of that, just sticking with the method in general, I know that for the main study, you were kind of using blood samples, but you're also trying to validate this non-invasive approach. And I kind of wonder if you could just explain what this non-invasive approach is and why it's valuable. Yes, definitely. So as I was saying, and, and Peter was also saying before, one of the main limitations for applying conservation genetics has always been the cost but also the sampling, so the availability of collecting samples from wild individuals. So um, a study in wild populations, as you can imagine, usually you cannot use blood samples because you cannot just go in Africa and collect a blood sample of a wild chimpanzee, right? So we, we need to start thinking about other sources of DNA that could give us this genetic information. And this is where non-invasive samples can give us this information. So non-invasive samples would be, for instance, feces or hair. And this is why in our study presented here, we also tested if we could get to the same results using a hair sample compared to blood sample. And we actually kind of get to the same results. Mm, that's fantastic. And I guess you've kind of mentioned there, obviously, using these kind of approaches in the field for like active conservation. You've also mentioned kind of using this to try and combat exploitation. So I wonder how you think your study might help in, say, chimp conservation efforts and the fight against their exploitation. I mean, there's about a thousand individuals of chimpanzees sitting in sanctuaries across Africa at the moment. So if we get a hair sample from either of, of these sanctuaries, we can pinpoint where that exact animal was captured. When we can collaborate all that 
data together, uh, we get some really good insights to some of the main harvesting grounds for, for the illegal trade. And of course, it can also be used for the relocation or if you want to reintroduce the captured individuals to the wild, uh, you can actually find the exact region that it originally came from. And lastly, if you have that information of where it was captured and then also where it was confiscated, you can start putting lines between these points and perhaps get a, a idea about some of the trafficking routes and, and hopefully in the, in the future, uh, break those routes. Mm, that would be the dream. <laughs> yeah, that would be the dream. I guess it's really clear how important this method is for the sort of management and conservation of chimpanzees. But I wonder if you think this sort of method more broadly is quick enough and cheap enough to be applied to sort of a more diverse group of taxa. Sure. I mean, essentially, you could you could extend it to, to any other sort of system that has the same conservation needs, right? So if you have a breeding program and you also have uh, conservation in the in the wild, particularly if you, you have a an animal or a species with taxonomic substructure. So it's important for your breeding management that you keep the, the subspecies, for instance, apart. Uh, then this this method is, is sort of like a blueprint for, for going about that. I mean, these problems extend to many species, not only apes, but birds, reptiles, amphibians, so on. And particularly for mammals, I know that a lot of other breeding programs are, are working on similar things. Mm. Yeah, I mean, I think that what we show here is how powerful can be conservation genetics to to have just all these endangered species, right? Yeah, and for a while, I mean, chimpanzees and great apes in, in general has been perhaps, um, it's been a bit of a luxury in, in terms of the amount of genomic data we have. But we see that building up for, for many other taxes as well. So. Already now and, and in the coming years, this will be uh, a very available approach to take. Mm, fantastic. And I guess the last question that I have is is sort of a, a more broad conceptual question. And it's that this paper kind of obviously relies very heavily on captive populations. And I know that a lot of zoos and other similar institutions are coming under quite a lot of scrutiny these days. I mean, particularly with lockdown measures, people are starting to feel a bit more sympathy with them. So I wonder if what you think the sort of value of captive populations of animals like chimpanzees is, or do you agree with the criticisms of it? Sure. I mean, I understand why why some people might have a hard time with, with zoos in, in sort of the traditional sense that it's just showcasing of exotic animals. But we see that in, in the sort of modern zoo that these populations are, are used for conservation purposes, either as like just simply fascinating people and getting people involved in, in conservation, but also actively having these sort of insurance populations where we can have a, a, a captive population that is safe from the, the threats you see in the wild. Until you can resolve those, we keep them in the bank, so to speak, or Noah's Ark, right? And should you come to the extent where populations in the wild go extinct or are close to, you can supplement with uh, these uh, zoo populations if necessary. Hopefully we won't get there. Um, mm. But just in case, we want to make sure that the populations we keep in, in zoos and animal parks, they they resemble what you once found in nature at least. 
Mm, no, for sure. And especially with papers like yours, you can kind of really see where that value lies. I mean, it's a big resource and the infrastructure in, in sample sharing is, is becoming a lot better through initiatives like the Piazza Biobank. So a lot of these uh, zoo institutions, they send into a central bank, so to speak, different samples. So you have a, a huge archive of all these samples from, from different regions and from widely different taxa. So it's a really a big resource if you want to get your hands on something you want to use for conservation. I mean, as Claudia said earlier, it can be really difficult to get hands-on samples, especially from the wild. But some of the zoo populations are founded by wild individuals. And if we have samples from that, we can even get information about samples from the Rhine, right? So it, it goes hand in hand. We learn a lot from the studies we do on wild population to, to use in our management of the captive population. But the other way around, some of the things we can discover and research on captive populations can be used in the wild. Mm, fantastic. Well, that's everything I had to ask you. So thank you very much for joining me. And to finish up, I wonder if you could just remind us of the title of your paper. And I also know it's an incredibly collaborative project. So just anybody else who deserves a mention. Yes, it was a big collaborative project. Um, the study is called Targeted Conservation Genetics of the Endangered Chimpanzee. Um, it was uh, co-first authored by me and Claudia and our two principal investigators, uh, Tomas Marquez Bonnet and, and Christina Wilson, uh, Claudia. So I just wanted to also add here that, I mean, we have been collaborating for a long time now between Barcelona and Copenhagen, and we are both leading this initiative of applying genomics to conservation. And I think that this is the way to go, to collaborate between different institutions so we, are, we can all get to a better end. Mm. Brilliant. Well, thank you both very much for joining me and sharing this work. It's a really fantastic paper, and I really hope that people will go and read it. Absolutely. Thank you very much. <laughs> Thanks to Peter and Claudia. This paper has really broad appeal, so please do go and give it a read. As always, you can find it on the Heredity website. That's nature.com forward slash HDY. And from one fascinating method to another, let's find out what's happening over on the Genetics Unzip podcast with Dr. Kat Arney. <laughs> In the latest episode of Genetics Unzipped, we reflect on the life and work of Dame Anne McLaren, one of the leading embryologists of the 20th century, whose work underpinned the development of the in vitro fertilisation techniques responsible for bringing millions of test tube babies into the world, and much more besides. Her curiosity about early mammalian embryos was the fire that fueled a lifetime of research. Her groundbreaking work in the 1950s not only laid the foundations for IVF, but also cloning and genetically engineered mice, technologies that have revolutionised human reproduction and biomedical research. Not bad for someone who ended up studying zoology by accident, because cramming for the Oxford University biology entrance exam seemed like an easier option than doing the required reading for English literature. Genetics Unzipped is brought to you by the Genetics Society. Listen and download now from geneticsunzipped.com or wherever you get your podcasts. It's a really fascinating topic, and I would strongly encourage you to go and give this one a listen. And you can do that right now, as that's all from us today. Remember that you can subscribe to the Heredity Podcast on all good podcast platforms, and you can follow us on Twitter, at Heredity Journal. If you want to get in touch with me directly, drop me an email at hereditypodcast.gen at gmail.com. Until next time, I'm James Bergen. Thanks for listening. This is Acast Recommends. Every week we pick one of our favourite shows, and this is one we think you're going to love. 
Hello, this is David Runciman, and I want to tell you about a new series, Talking Politics, History of Ideas, which will explore the ideas behind modern politics. From Hobbes to Gandhi, from democracy to patriarchy, from revolution to lockdown, the big themes, the big thinkers, and the big crises of the last 300 years, all of it relevant to the crisis we're living through today. Just subscribe to Talking Politics, History of Ideas, wherever you get your podcasts. Acast is home to the biggest podcasts from the UK and around the world. Subscribe to this show and hundreds more now via Acast or wherever you get your podcasts.